Well, we're talking today about uh, mostly about belonging and, and purpose. I think belonging and purpose are some of our most deeply felt needs as human beings. And without it, we just don't really feel ourselves. We don't feel human if we don't belong. We don't feel human if, if we don't feel like we have a purpose. Uh, you may have heard this story before, but if you were living in America, at least, uh, I'm sure there's similar stories here, in the 60s or 70s or 80s, and if you were gay and you came out, immediately you would find that you didn't belong. Um, regardless of what a church would believe or not believe, what that gay person would understand and hear often was that they didn't belong and they didn't, they didn't want them there. Homes and families didn't want you anymore either, so it was a very good chance you'd end up homeless, probably on the street. And this is what actually eventually created strong gay communities, because a gay community is an upgrade from uh, a drug-abusing community or a prostitution kind of community, which is kind of what living on the street looks like. So uh, it's a, a gay communities in America were groups of people who didn't belong, attempting to find purpose, attempting to find belonging. And what should have been places of refuge, like the home or especially the church, became places of hostility. It's not easy to live in a space where you don't have purpose and where you don't belong. I mean, we were basically homeless, like, last year, up until, like, this month last year. But, I mean, we had, like, the best, worst experience of that. We weren't on the street. Uh, we didn't live out of our car. We had places to stay. Um, and so our experience wasn't as horrible as probably what most people experience. But we had a complete lack of purpose. Like, why are we in America? We were planting a church in the UK. Our house was in the UK. All our stuff was here. Our friends. Like, what? And even though people meant well and, and did try and, and they did service really well, we definitely had a sense of we don't like belong here. Like, they all had their lives and they were moving on and we were just kind of injecting ourselves into these people's lives. And it just it didn't feel good. No one likes that. I mean, we were meant for belonging. We were meant for purpose. It's how we are created. And when we don't get it, our lives feel incomplete. When we don't get it, we'll kind of clamor for it in any kind of possible way we can find it. We might buy motorbikes or wear lycra or get piercings or tattoos or whatever the kind of strange hobbies might be in order for us to feel a sense of belonging. Um, I'm not saying if you wear lycra, there's something wrong with you. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've offended everybody in here. Um, wait, I have a motorbike. Um, well, here's an example. If you go to the uh, University of Nottingham, you could join the Extreme Ironing Club. Do you guys know what extreme ironing is? It's like where you go to like weird places and iron clothes. Like Whoa, top of Everest, uh, while you're skydiving, all sorts of things like that. There's a great quote. Uh, it's a sport, apparently. Um, EI is what the people in the know call it. Um, and here's how Wikipedia defines EI. An extreme sport in which people take ironing boards to remote locations and iron items of clothing. Okay. Uh, it combines the thrills of an extreme outdoor activity with the satisfaction of a well-pressed shirt. <laughs> so we all need, why would anyone else do this? No one's just going to do that by themselves. They do that in groups. And it's really just like drinking clubs that have an iron clothes sometimes is I think really what these groups are. Um, we need purpose. We need belonging. And we'll make it up one way or another. We'll fight to find it. But where can we find a purpose that is purposeful, for lack of a better way of putting it. And where can we find the belonging that is truly deeper than just well-pressed shirts, as fun as that might be, and that's fine. I mean, if you're in an extreme ironing group and all of a sudden you don't want to iron your clothes at 10,000 feet, what do you do for belonging then? Or if you find belonging in your family and then some tragedy comes along and you don't have a family anymore, what then? We need a purpose and a belonging that's stronger than everything else. If you find your purpose in a career and all of a sudden you don't have that job anymore, what then? 
or you hate your job, what then? We need a purpose and belonging that's deeper than these things. Because our culture offers lots of different places to have purpose, lots of different places to belong. But only Jesus offers something that can withstand everything else. And it can't be lost. It can't be forgotten. We can't lose it. So this story in Mark teaches us that Jesus gives us that purpose. Uh, and he invites us to join him with the mission of bringing wholeness. The story also teaches us how he gives us that belonging, uh, teaches that he gives us that belonging we desire because he doesn't treat us like workers at a factory or employees or slaves or any kind of thing like that. He treats us like family because he makes us family. So in the previous story where we ended, uh, basically we ended with people plotting to kill Jesus in verse 6 of chapter 3. Um, so the, the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Then in this story, in verse 7, we find Jesus has to withdraw because so many people in the crowds are trying to follow him or trying to get near him. And it's becoming a problem as we've seen before already. Uh, so Jesus kind of has to remove himself a bit. Jesus is doing what he does, healing people, casting out demons. And remember the way the demons are coming to them, even though they say uh, the demons are calling him the son of God, like there in verse 11. Remember, that's not like the demons uh, being nice to Jesus and submitting to him. Most likely what's going on there is that's the demons trying to control Jesus, especially the way the writers are writing them. That was the way you control somebody. If you know their real name, you can say it and then you can like calm them down or have them submit to you. And that's not happening. Jesus is casting out demons. He's healing people. Um, and then in verse 12, he's not just casting out demons. He's giving them strict orders to not tell others about him. Those strict orders are the same kind of, that word, the same kind of word that uh, uh, the writer in Mark uses when Jesus calms the storm. He basically like gives the storm strict orders to be quiet, basically a rebuke. This is what he's doing to these demons. He's casting them out and muzzling them. So this is how the king kind of works when people try and oppose him, when people try and bump up against him. And then uh, what we're going to find in the rest of these, these verses here uh, are two kind of main themes. And so just the single sentence, I think, that covers this is that Jesus has appointed us to join him as members of his family. So we'll take that first section, Jesus has appointed us to join him, and then we'll take the second one as members of his family. And if you want to um, file a little handout, there will be one on your sheet if you have one. So let's talk first about that Jesus has appointed us to join him section. Um, we're going to look at three things. Where are they? Who are they? And what are they doing? First, Jesus brings them up to a mountainside there in verse 13. Uh, a mountainside isn't just a kind of random tidbit that Mark throws in. The mountain, um, a mountain is where heaven meets earth. And I mean, quite literally, it's the highest part of earth. It's where heaven and earth meet. It's places where God chooses to reveal himself. So like when God gave the Ten Commandments, he didn't do it kind of in a valley or on a plain. He did it on top of a mountain. And it shows like this is how God chooses to, uh, to bring his revelation where heaven is meeting earth. So I think that's important. So we see Jesus is acting like God because he is. So who are they? Who are these people that he's bringing along with them? Well, first, they're called. Jesus um, called to those who he wanted. <laughs> they're wanted by Jesus. And they came to him. Just like if Jesus tells a demon to go somewhere and to not talk, that demon is going to go somewhere and not talk. If Jesus calls the people to join him on a mountain, these people are going to come to him. So they do. Jesus has power over everyone. And they came along. Now this, I think, should be humbling because uh, it doesn't say that Jesus found very clever people and they came to him. Or Jesus found very devout people. 
people who are really good in their prayer life, but people who got up at 5 a.m. every day to read their Bible, those are the people that Jesus called. Uh, no, it's just the people that Jesus chose, just like in Deuteronomy 7. God chooses to love people, and they're responding to that love. So we aren't clever or nice or moral, or maybe we are, but that's not the reason why Jesus wants to be with us. In some cases, it might be the opposite, that we're actually not very nice or clever. <laughs> but for those who follow Jesus, it's because Jesus has called us. It's really nothing more than that. It's a very simple equation. So Jesus has called us. Uh, so he called to those we wanted, and then verse 14, and then uh, it says that they are appointed. So they're called and they're appointed. It says that also in verse 16, as it lists the names of everybody. By the way, son, uh, Sons of Thunder, how amazing is that? Someone needs to start some kind of metal band. It used to be like dueling guitars. Yeah, I won't start. Um, it probably already exists. I hope it does. I'm going to find out on YouTube when this is all over. Um, so if you're staying for dinner, we will be listening to Sons of Thunder. <laughs> so they're uh, appointed. So appointed is to like commission someone or to ordain someone. It's a kind of an official uh, request from a king for someone else to follow out. Uh, these 12 are giving and given an official commission from King Jesus. And there's no random reason, by the way, for picking 12 people. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, this is new, my new community. This is my new Israel. Israel old Israel had 12 tribes. These are 12 people who are representing God's new community, God's new family. Old Israel had kings, but this new kingdom has King Jesus. And these 12 are to constitute this new community of God that he is in the process of making. And so I am not the only ordained member of Redeemer. We are all ordained by Jesus, all ordained by a higher order than a church or a denomination. It's by the king of all creation. So that's um, a little bit of who they are. So what have they been called to do? What have they been appointed to do? Because if we're appointed, it's appointed to do something, some kind of action aspect. Well, they've been empowered by the king to do the same thing that Jesus was doing, to preach and to have authority over the spiritual world. Verse 14 says he appointed 12 so they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach. And then verse 15, to have authority to drive out demons. And they're sent to do this. So being sent in itself isn't the commission. It's not like Jesus appointed them to be sent. Being sent is just part of what that commission means. It's the reality of living out that commission. Um, and I just, actually, let's look at verse 14 for a second there. Uh, it says that um, appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So that means being with Jesus means you are sent out by him. I mean, we could do a whole sermon kind of on that concept. Like being with Jesus means we are sent by him. Those are, it's not like, am I, should I be in Jesus' presence or should I be more like a missionary living it out? The two are the same. To be with Jesus means to live that sending missionary kind of life. Being with Jesus, being sent by him means... One, uh, and this hopefully is encouraging and relieving, means we're not sent by our own power. It doesn't say we have to figure it out. Jesus is the one who has sent us. Jesus is the one who has the power. And so we find our power, our um, any kind of authority that we might have or any kind of um, words of good news to preach that we might have, it comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from us. He's the one empowering to preach, empowering to have a, a power over the spiritual world. So again, we don't have to be clever. We don't have to be good. Um, uh, Jesus is just calling us to respond to him. Now, hopefully, I mean, it, it's good to be clever. It's 
good to be good. Uh, it's good to read our Bible. It's good to pray. But that's not like the first, the first order. The first order is uh, responding to Jesus' call in our lives and depending on him. So, um, so they should preach and have authority over the spiritual world. Uh, so preach, assumingly, is the same thing that Jesus was preaching, which um, all the way back in Mark 1.14 was uh, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming, this is how Jesus, the words that Jesus preached, kind of a summation of his message, the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And assuming, I mean, because we don't have any more information, this is probably also what his disciples are preaching if they're following Jesus. They're, preach, they're preaching the gospel, we're preaching God's good news that we can, um, that he has uh, come to earth. And so really for Jesus, and he's preaching himself because he is this God who's come to earth. And so that means we preach Jesus. And we're always making disciples of one thing or another. So I guess, how does that look in our lives? So we, being followers of Jesus, are commissioned by the king himself for a task that only we can perform. I am not friends with Elspeth's friends. Like, I'm just not. Only Elspeth can have that kind of connection with her friends. We're all in kind of very unique situations in our lives that Jesus has sent us into. And only we can perform those. We're not called for, other people aren't called to be a part of our appointing, of our commission. But... This is not like a, a reason to get anxious or to get overburdened because Jesus is the one who's with us. He's the one who's sending us. He's the one who is um, giving us the words we need. So really the point here, as we see Jesus is kind of doing all the action, is for us to grow in our dependence on the king. To grow in our dependence on Jesus, to preach what we ought to, to live out our lives in congruence with, that, with those words. So that's the preaching bit. Um, he also gives them authority um, to drive out demons. Now, I have never driven out a demon, um, but maybe more broadly, I think really what Jesus is saying here is um, that he's given like a special authority over the spiritual world. So Jesus gives the disciples power over the spiritual world, um, and we get that same power. It's not like a special kind of thing that the disciples get. Later on in, in verse 27, uh, which is kind of this weird parable that Jesus talks about with the strong men and then this kind of the unforgivable sin. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but w at least what we know from that parable is that Jesus has complete power over demons and has complete power over Satan. So any, any part of that spiritual world of darkness, Jesus has complete power over. And Jesus knows that our battles aren't over what's seen, but what's unseen. So living in our world today, we can't help but start with only believing that the physical world is all there is. That's probably all of our default mode because we're living in a very kind of westernized, materialistic kind of world. So this might be a bit of a stretch for us to realize that every day there's spiritual realities going, going on behind the scenes. So getting up early to read your Bible or to pray, like that's actually a spiritual battle. You might be really tired, or if that's the time when you pray or whatever. whatever. Um, but really, like it's not a battle with flesh and blood. That's a spiritual battle. Choosing to go to that website or not, or looking at that person and thinking things you ought to or not. I mean, those are spiritual battles. Speaking those words of truth to others to encourage them. And how, how do you, or people who don't know Jesus, how do you deal with that fear? It's not a self-esteem issue. It's a spiritual battle. And we aren't powerless when it comes to spiritual battles. We are not under that power. We are connected to the one who has complete control over those things. And we may not be driving out demons, but we don't need to fear anything. And so we should grow in that dependence on Jesus as we mature.
maybe we'll drive out demons. Let me know how that goes. I'm very interested in that. Um, <laughs> so these people, they're called, they're appointed, sent to preach and to have authority. What we find here is Jesus is very generous with his mission. Um, Jesus didn't leave writings. He didn't leave a monument. He didn't leave a political system. He didn't leave like a nation state of any kind of sort. He didn't leave a government. He left the people. He left the disciples. And they multiplied Jesus' mission. And as we are sent, we multiply Jesus' mission. Jesus could have done all of this by himself. Why, he just, why did he not do that? It would have been much better. It would have been perfect. But he wants us to be a part of this thing. He's generous with that. He wants us to experience the, the joy of, of living in that way. So Jesus has the authority to choose whom he wants. And he wants many others to join in with him. I think a um, good illustration of what it means to live out this is building a bookshelf with dad. If you're a little guy, you're building a bookshelf with dad. It's like me putting together an Ikea bookshelf with Colin wanting to help. He'll get his little, his little tools out, uh, or maybe he'll play with like one tool that kind of won't, that'll do as least damage as possible. Um, and, you know, I'm putting together this bookshelf and I'm giving some little task. Of course, it takes 10 times more time to do it than for me to do it. Um, and then when he does it well, he feels proud and I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it and, I'm, and I encourage him. I tell him, oh, he's done really good work. And when he doesn't work, he gets frustrated, so I try and comfort him and encourage him to keep going. I don't invite him to help me to build that bookshelf because he's going to be efficient. Like, that's dumb. No one does that. He's not going to get this thing done any quicker than me. And In fact, it's the opposite. I know it's going to take longer. But I love him helping me because we get to do something together. And he gets to feel like he's part of that purpose of seeing that thing that I made with Dad. And we get to do that together. You know, it's the same with God. He didn't appoint us because of efficiency. He didn't appoint us because he knew, ah, oh, I think he's perfect. He will get it done perfectly. He appointed us because of love, because he wants us to be a part. He wants us to, to uh, engage with him on this mission of bringing wholeness to this world. He wants us to find our purpose in him is really what he wants. And that means that whatever we do, as we're going, as we're sent, we can find our purpose in him. It's probably already the things we're involved in. We, don't, we probably don't need to add very much to our lives. So the question for us here, all of us, is where is God moving in our lives? Where is God moving in our relationships with others? Where is God moving um, in uh, the relationship with your work colleagues or your neighbors? There's, God is already at work behind there. It's not like he's not at work. He is. I mean, do we see ourselves as, as having to lead the charge? And we, are we putting that burden on ourselves? Because if we are, that probably means we're not doing very much. Because that's just overwhelming. Or are we... Building a bookshelf with dad. And when things go well, like, are we quick to go to dad about how you both work together? Or when things don't go well, do you hear dad's words of encouragement and comfort speaking to you? <coughs> now, hopefully that's encouraging of, of, how, um, of how Jesus works, chooses to work. Now, there's this parable that Jesus teaches um, Let's do a bit of like a sidebar here because um, there can be something that uh, some Christians can be like very scared about this unforgivable sin. If anyone has ever heard this term before, um, there's a parable of Jesus teaches. Basically, the point of the parable is to show that Jesus has a power to restrain evil. Jesus has a power to forgive evil. Um, but something that can be a big hangup or cause of anxiety is in verse 29, where Jesus says, "Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven." They're guilty of an eternal sin, which is scary. Like, wait, wait, whoa, there's something that 
can't be forgiven? Like, does that mean if I say something like bad about God or about the Holy Spirit that Jesus is like, oh, sorry, you're done now. Like, forget about it. Um, what's the deal? Well, uh, uh, I think what's going on here is, um, well, here's, here's a quote from a commentator. It might be helpful. It says, rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is one thing, but attacking the power by which he works is something far more serious. If one is weak, one can be encouraged. If one is ignorant, one can be informed. If one is willfully blind and deaf and rejects help, what can be done? The people that Jesus is talking to are the people who know the scriptures. They're teachers of the law. And they're the people who are saying that Jesus is from Satan. That's like the worst possible thing you could ever say out loud to anybody. And if you're a teacher of the law, of course you're going to carry weight and authority with the, way you're, with the words you're using. And the the in unforgivable sin we'll talk about what that is in a minute, in a second here is um not just like a single action it's not like oh if i step over this line once then i'm done it's a continual act a continual state of denying of denying jesus and uh, attributing evil authority to him it's deliberately scorning the power and forgiveness of god so it means someone who knows what they're doing now jesus says that this blas- says that blasphemy in general is forgivable because in, in verse uh, 28 it says people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they under they utter so it's not like all blasphemy is completely unforgivable in fact paul was a blasphemer he calls himself a blasphemer and jesus forgave him so it it, it would have it would have been unforgivable for paul though had he continued to spurn the lord had he been con- continued to to act in that persecuting kind of way trying to destroy knowing who god is in some sense and trying to destroy destroy what god's trying to do the unforgivable sin is a continual pattern of knowing the truth, working against the truth, and not asking forgiveness from God. So, God, if, if you've never asked forgiveness from God, how can he give it? He's not going to be able to give it. And you won't want it if he does. So, if, you're, if you've ever been kind of anxious or worried that you've done this or in the future, if, first of all, if you're anxious or worried about it, it's proof that it isn't you, because that shows a repentant heart, some kind of spirit going on there. Um, and Jesus always forgives those who ask for it. He always does. He doesn't promise to forgive those who don't ask for it. It's a thing. And that's a scary thing. That should all give us pause. We'll end that little sidebar there. Are there any... We're, we're a small house church. We can do this. Um, are there any questions about that? Because I think that can be like theologically kind of weird sometimes. That's fine. You can ask me later. Yeah, I think yeah. I have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about it later. Um, right, so that, that's the first little section there, that Jesus has appointed us to join him. Let's go to the um, second half, as members of his family. And what Jesus does first is he redefines family to begin with. Um, Jesus' earthly family sees all these crowds trying to push in on Jesus. I mean, they, they are so overwhelmed with people that they can't even eat food. They can't, I don't know if they can't, maybe they can't get to it or if they, like, are their hands like completely squished where they can't grab a sandwich or something? I don't know. Um, so people are crowding in, and then the family uh, wants to take charge of him in verse 21. That sounds a little bit familiar to the demons wanting to take charge of Jesus. And why did they want to take charge of him? Well, they thought he lost his mind. Like, he's out of his mind. What in the world is this guy doing? I know Jesus. He grew up in my house. I'm his mom. He's out of his mind. And then in, in verse 31, later on, they, uh, they send someone to the house to get Jesus out. And someone tells Jesus, hey, man, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. You should probably, like, you know, shut this party down and go join them. And Jesus does not respond positively. Jesus says, well, who are my mother and brothers? 
And looking around at everyone, as he looks around at us, he says, you are my brothers, my sisters, my mother. Any, anyone who does God's will is my brother, my sister, my brother. So we aren't just workers or slaves or peers or employees. Jesus uses the closest relationship, the closest word for relationship possible. We're family. That's how Jesus views us. This, this would surprise everyone then, especially because family, even more so for our culture, was kind of like how, you, um, how everyone interacted with everybody. But especially during this time, uh, family was like the basis of your social life. It was the basis of your economic life. Who, what family you came from determined everything. But Jesus chooses to redefine this. And it's inclusive. This family is, uh, regardless of skin color, of language, of class, or of gender, but it's also demanding. Nothing else will hold the, the need for belonging that we have as human beings. Nothing else will be able to stay under that weight except for Jesus' family. No social status, no amount of money, no class status, no blood family, no pedigree, no career, nothing except the reality of being family with Jesus will be able to hold our need for belonging. That means everything else has to come second because his family is a source of our identity. His family is the source of everything. It's where we get our meaning. And this is a radical redefinition of what family is about. It's a radical redefinition of what the church ought to be about. Because if this is true, that means our lives should change and not be orientated around ourselves first, but around Jesus' family first. And that feels really weird because I like to make my own decisions myself. I don't want someone else speaking into that. But for people who have lost family for following Jesus, this should also be a comfort because we get to have this together. Christ sees that. Christ knows that. But uh, it's not all rosy. It's not just um, hanging out and enjoying each other, though it is that. It's not just that. There's a cost to being in this family because people will say all sorts of things about Jesus. They'll say, he's possessed. Uh, He's lost his mind. That means people will say all sorts of things about us who follow him. Like, oh, Christians, wait, you guys believe in like the Bible? Like you believe actually those words? Surely that makes you bigoted. Surely that makes you backward. Surely that makes you like feeble-minded. Ah, like religion, maybe they mean well, but it's really pointless in the end. Religion's kind of for the weak. Christianity really is irrelevant at best and downright harmful at worst. That's what many people think. And we who strive to follow Jesus will also have to be um, the bearer of burdens that other people, of uh, things that other people have done, atrocities that have not followed Jesus' way but have done, been done in his name. It's not fair that we have to bear those burdens, but we have to. Genocide, racism, nationalism, ostracizing others because of their class background, saying horrible things about people because of their sexual identity. And we're going to have to bear that burden. So that's part of the cost. Another cost is people won't get it. People are not going to get it. Jesus' own blood family didn't get it. They, and Jesus is, what, 30-ish maybe at this point? He lived with them, and they're like, oh, he's lost his mind. They did not get it. Others won't understand why we spend time on, and energy on something so pointless. It takes a lot of time and energy to start a church. Why are we spending this kind of time doing this? We could be doing something else. It could be making money or having some kind of good hobby or something. Others won't understand the pain of seeing others that we love not follow Jesus. They're just not going to get it. We'll feel alone in that. Of course, Jesus has felt alone and more. One of his own 
even as they, they're listing the names of these people that Jesus is pouring his life out for, um, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Mark is telling us right away. People will betray. So people will say all sorts of things. They won't get it. Also, um, people will be set against it. Like teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the people who should have been on Jesus' side, wanted to kill him. So the idea of people saying things about the church as being horrible or wanting to get at Jesus or whatever, this is not something new. This is not some kind of like new post-Christian development that the church has been like under attack by the outside culture or whatever kind of the normal narrative says. This has just been the norm for Christians. People will try and obstruct the mission. The massively long administrative times that it takes to volunteer at the Longford Center, I mean, that is evil. I mean, the people who are working there aren't evil. They mean well. They're trying to work the best of the situation. But that system is horrible and evil. It's broken. And then there will also be people who will want to see us fail and might even act to make that happen. And we should be sad about that, angry about that, frustrated about that. But it shouldn't surprise us. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. We should expect it to happen. So the question is, when those things happen, how are we going to act? What are we going to do? How are we going to say What are we going to say? So Jesus' family, though, even though there is a cost, is the only place where we find that purpose and belonging that we long for. Obviously, there is a cost. So it's a cost, but what Jesus, the story I think here is teaching us is that ultimately this is an invitation from Jesus to be with him. Jesus wants us to be present with him. He wants us to experience the love that he has to give. He wants us to experience the purpose that our souls were created for, the belonging that our souls just have an in and a, a hole made for. And maybe the biggest cost really isn't outside, it's within. The biggest cost is really for us to deny ourselves. Every instinct that we have tells us to affirm ourselves above all costs, to embrace ourselves above all costs. But if we're embracing only ourselves, there's no room for Christ. If we accept Jesus' invitation to purpose and belonging, that means we must decline all other, all other invitations that are vying for that same kind of space. If you got two invitations in the mail of a party is at the same time in, the same, or in two different places, you have to pick or choose. You can't be a both. But which one is better? So that means to be in Jesus' family, a.k.a. to to follow Jesus, uh, what Jesus is talking about here is is a singular devotion. Because in Jesus' family, there is no division. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Satan knows that. Satan's not divided. If you're adopted into a family, you can't remain in the previous family. By definition, that's the definition of adoption. You are now part of a new family. Now, Maybe this sounds harsh. Do you have to leave your family to follow Jesus? Do I have to leave Christina and Colin to follow Jesus? I mean, how does that work? I think it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of importance. Whatever is first in my life will accept number two, will will, uh, affect number two, number three, number four, and everything else. If my career is first in my life, that will affect my family. Uh, That will affect my relationship with Jesus. If my family is first in my life, or my marriage, or the, the want of any, of any of those things, it's going to affect everything else. And that means our family, or your marriage, or whatever, has to bear that burden for them to have all that belonging and all that purpose that they were never meant to have. Only Jesus can bear that burden. He's meant to. And he's asking for it. Also, if, he's, if Jesus is our first priority, that means um, that can only positively affect all those other areas of our life where we want to be better. I want to be a better husband. 
That doesn't mean focus on Christina. That means focus on Jesus. I want to be a better father. It doesn't mean focus on Colin first. It means focus on Jesus. I want to be a better employee or, or whatever else that might be. Only Jesus can bear the burden of our hopes and dreams and fears, and only Jesus can care for us as we need. Only Jesus can give us the power that we need for all the other areas of life. So his invitation to be part of his family is an invitation to this kind of priority. If he is important, why are our lives organized around so many other things? Do we love sleep or exercise or food more? Do we love Netflix or video games or grades or leisure time more? Now, it doesn't mean that we always have to deny ourselves all these things and we become some kind of monk ascetic types. Um, it just means that Jesus has to mean more than all those things. And our problem, it's really hard, because our problem is that we live in this individualistic, consumeristic world, and basically everything is, is under our control. Our world offers infinite choice, and it's really hard to live as a follower of Jesus in that kind of world. Jesus' call to his family will always be a challenge to that, though. It will always, always be an aspect of the cost. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. But what's the next step, maybe, for you to continue in your walk for Jesus? If you're part of his family, what's one maybe small change that you could live out and live out that identity more? Does taking up the cross for you mean putting down the phone? Does taking up the cross mean setting an alarm? Does taking up the cross mean talking to that person who you find really awkward and weird but you know really needs a friend? That's me, by the way. <laughs> when we find ourselves divided, and we are, we will. We will do it often. We will find ourselves divided often. We know we can come to Jesus, not to grovel or to like, offer some kind of penance if we say the right kind of words, but to ask our loving king to forgive us. And he does. Because of who we are, members of Jesus' family, we do the things that we're called to do. we preach, have authority. And that word appointed that we talked about a bit, um, where Jesus appointed the twelve and uh, to go out and to preach, that word is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, is the same word of when God created the heavens and the earth. It's the created a making um, that appointing. It's a, a making a, a making into something that wasn't before. So in many ways, what we're reading about in Mark, a book written millennia before we were even born, is what we're reading about is what we were created for. The reason we long to find a place of belonging is because this is it's what we're created for. And as a church, we are people who by ourselves don't belong together, and yet God has given us this belonging. So there are parts of us when we consider Redeemer, when we consider Jesus, and we're gonna say, Jesus, you're out of my you're out of your mind. That's crazy. I, I we need to be we need to like be controlled a little bit here, Jesus. You're getting a little crazy. And others are gonna question us and say we aren't from God. They're going to say we're horrible. We're going to say all things about us. But all the darkness is held back by Jesus, and Jesus has tied everything up. It costs him everything to do that. But because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you know that? Can you think about that? That um, when Jesus was going to the cross, when he was hanging there, that you were on his mind because he was looking forward to the joy of what this would look like even today. Redeemer was on Jesus' mind. Because of the joy set before him in creating a family for himself, he went through his death and was poured out. And that's why we celebrate this table. He was broken, like this bread is broken, so that we wouldn't be. And his blood was poured out 
which bought for him a new family in Jesus. So all the sin, all the darkness, all the brokenness was then poured out on our king so that we get all the grace, all the love, and all of that purpose and belonging poured out on us.